I have, I just want to make um, a disclaimer for anybody listening to this. If I sound white or a little bit restrained or like, I don't know, stuffy, it's because the computer and all recording devices are extensions of the white gaze. And so this is the best that I'm doing under those conditions. But <laughs> that is today's guest host, Naila Orr. During the recording of this episode, Naila joined us from her home studio, aka Bedroom Closet, in Philadelphia. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio, broadcast from the Mojave Desert. I'm Sara Ortiz. And I'm Naila Orr. So, Naila, can we talk about that disclaimer? <laughs> yeah, we can. I knew we would. So, we should probably give folks the context here. We captured that unscripted moment. I love that moment, but it was very much an unscripted moment while we were tracking your narration for the Toni Morrison segment, which kicks off this episode of Black Mountain Radio. And I want to say that this was the third recording. Yeah, I believe it was the third recording. I was realizing that I didn't feel entirely comfortable and I didn't know why. I was still very... um, feeling a little bit apprehensive about the recording process, honestly. Yeah, I, I hear you. And and just so listeners can know, we decided to begin with that unscripted moment because this episode is in some way about performance. Who's watching and who's listening and how are they listening with what intent and how does that change the nature of the performance itself? Yeah, I, I felt nervous. There was something that like sort of locked up for me when I got in front of this recording device, I remembered something that the filmmaker Arthur Jaffa said when he was making his documentary, Dreams Are Colder Than Death. The audio from his documentary didn't sync with the images. The B-roll and the audio never correspond. In this documentary, he interviews Fred Moten, Saidiya Hartman, uh, Horton Spillers, a bunch of prominent Black writers and thinkers. He was explaining that he didn't have the camera turned on when he talked to them because he feels that the white gaze um, is is pervasive in all of these recording technologies. Mm, that white gaze. Even though I wasn't technically in front of a camera, I was still in front of this technology that was going to record my voice and I had to put my best foot, face, voice forward. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that was very daunting to me. There is certainly a particular way that people tend to sound on radio, that NPR voice of sorts, right? Yeah, and I think in, in addition to NPR voice, there is a, a, a writer voice too. So you got writer voice and NPR voice together. It's just bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do know. And it's so interesting that you say that because, you know, clearly at Black Mountain Radio, we're aware of that, but we're not trying to emulate it. These six episodes are driven by artists and focused on our Vegas community. And usually around this time of the year, we're only weeks away from our annual Believer Festival. And this program will reflect an essence of that festival. And we're also celebrating BMI's 15th anniversary, which is super exciting. Yes, happy birthday to us. (laughs) (laughs) I could do Las Mañanitas, but I won't. (laughs) When we started sketching out this season, we knew we wanted to revisit the, the inaugural BMI lecture delivered by Toni Morrison back in 2006. 
And because Naila, you and I shared an office for about a year, I knew about how Morrison was a pivotal figure in your life. So I suggested that we reach out to you to talk about that lecture. And I'm so glad that you agreed. Well, I'm so glad that you asked me because it really gave me this opportunity to talk about someone who means so much to me. I'm so excited to be thinking about her. She, she was a person who was not interested in writing for the white gaze. Mm. And she spoke that very proudly. As a black woman, you know, she means so much to me. And I'm glad that I got this opportunity to meditate on her life, her career, her work. I feel like the spirit of Toni Morrison is just like guiding this recording. Mm, I'm going to try to channel that energy with me as, for the rest of this recording. <laughs> What follows next is Naila Orr navigating Morrison's remarks specifically about refuge and asylum. My life changed the summer of 2005 when I read Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon for the first time. I was 16 and I had never read anything like it. It was complex and beautiful and challenging, and it was entirely about Black life. And the language felt lived into me, felt like real approximations of the kinds of things my great-grandmother used to say. Morrison ends the book by writing, if you surrender to the air, you could ride it. It's a riddle I still consider to this day. Back then, I was particularly struck by the italicized emphasis on ride. It communicated writerly intention I hadn't known was possible. The formatting of this one word demonstrated radical care that thrilled me. Ride. The word slant, along with the rest of the sentence, suggested leaning into experience. All kinds of possibilities opened up for me with that reading. I went on to study Morrison's body of work in my last two years of high school, and then in college, and then in my graduate writing program. Now her books are friends on the shelf, immersions into language and the familiar points of view of my favorite characters like Sula and Nell and Milkman and Jadine. I regularly pull them down to remind myself of some detail I've forgotten or to recreate the conditions of discovery. Leave to a random page in a Morrison book and you'll find something alluring. Morrison's books demand to be reread. Back then, I took refuge in re-engaging them. They were a place to be, to hang out in after school. I was repeatedly edified by returning to the material. I'd find new things to appreciate each time. I found immense value in the intricacy of Morrison's writing and her resistance to be easily understood, at least on the first read. Her books demanded effort, and I wanted to work. In addition to providing a place to escape, Morrison herself was a model for the kind of professional I could be, as a writer and editor, and more broadly as an interpreter of my own interior life and as a conceiver of my own liberation. As she wrote in her book, Playing in the Dark, quote, my work requires me to think about how free I can be as an African-American woman in my genderized, sexualized, wholly racialized world. In that same book, she said that her project as a writer rises from delight. She found delight in reading, writing, and speaking publicly about things that matter to her, whether at Harvard or Princeton, where she taught for many years, or to the Nobel Committee or to an auditorium full of bookish Las Vegans. Fifteen years ago this month, on April 6, 2006, Morrison spoke to a crowded lecture hall on the campus of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, with tremendous pleasure and admiration, I would like to introduce to you Morrison. 
The Nobel Prize winner was at UNLV to deliver the inaugural Black Mountain Institute lecture to an audience of more than a thousand eager listeners. Now I have to warn you, the audio recording of the lecture is not very good. As you listen, you might find yourself straining to understand the full meaning of her words. The tape is illegible. It sounds like it was recorded by someone who was sitting in the back of the lecture hall who keeps fidgeting with the recorder. The tape mostly resists understanding, but not in the subversive way Morrison's writing does. For this reason, I'll be a kind of intermediary between 2006 Morrison and you, translating her speech. Known for her elegant prose, rigorous literary scholarship, and incisive incantatory novels, that night, Morrison turned her brilliant imagination to the notion of asylum. The cities of asylum takes care to ensure the life and work of writers facing peril. But along with that urgency, I want to emphasize that their absence, not doing that, she talked about the role Las Vegas would play as an emerging safe haven for persecuted writers and their families. By that point, Morrison's bona fides as a writer, editor, and lecturer had been firmly established already. But this appearance highlighted an underreported aspect of her legacy, that of an advocate for humanitarian projects like City of Asylum. In ordinary ways and extraordinary ways and in experimental ways, Creativity obviously thrives here. In her address, she engaged the idea of placemaking, a core theme in much of her writing. Las Vegas belongs to NANCA, the North American Cities of Asylum program, which in turn formed from the International Institute of Modern Letters. Black Mountain Institute's first executive director, Dr. Carol C. Harder, hoped BMI would attract worldwide talent and hoped to open its doors to writers seeking refuge. We extend to them is a profound generosity to ourselves. Morrison praised BMI's initiative. Her address was global in scope. She wanted to discuss, quote, the peril in which artists all over the world live about the danger in some regions of simply practicing modern art. And the efforts to censor, starve, regulate, and annihilate it were clear and effective signs. That's something truly important that place. Eight months removed from Hurricane Katrina, Morrison touched on the stark devastation there and told the audience about how she had encountered a hurricane survivor in New York City. He played a song on his saxophone, splendid music that, as Morrison put it, was overwhelming in its refusal to be overwhelmed by sorrow. A musician who in fact was from New Orleans stood up Morrison invoked the artist working near what she called the throng of military power or empire building. But as one might expect, the place she addressed most directly was Las Vegas. Las Vegas, Las Vegas as, you know, as you must know, 
is a city that has lived in the imaginations of the entire population for as long as it has existed. Real and surreal. At just 116 years old, Las Vegas is one of America's newer major cities and is still making itself. In 2006, when Morrison visited BMI, her appearance helped Vegas's literary community to better shape itself. Las Vegas Weekly laid out the project in an article called Can They Build a Culture? They, meaning BMI. I would like to compliment this city, Las Vegas, for its participation in the network of City of Asylum Thoroughly, initially pioneer-like in participating in this really extraordinary movement. Las Vegas. Morrison helped Las Vegas become a refuge by vouching for its legitimacy as an art center and signal-boosting its participation in the City of Asylum program. As Morrison said in her lecture, it is imperative that we accumulate safe environments not only to save the writers, but to save ourselves. Black Mountain Institute has maintained its mission, and since 2006, it has hosted City of Asylum Fellows and their families. In 2014, BMI City of Asylum Fellow was Hossein Avkinar, a Khan Award-winning screenwriter and novelist whose work, which concerns Iranian history, revolution, and women's rights, is banned in his native Iran. He has spoken about the peace he and his son Nima had found in Las Vegas. He spoke of a room, a protected place to try out ideas. I am a writer, he said. For me, a small room, a table, and pieces of paper to write on are enough. It does not matter where in the world this room is located, Tehran, Paris, Las Vegas. I want to write in a state of peace and fearlessness. Morrison highlighted the type of persecution writers like Hossein were fleeing from. When speaking about censorship and the erasure of other voices, she said, it's as though a whole universe is being described in invisible ink. It's probably inevitable that leaders in this community, leaders in this community, with I'm sure some prodding, but nevertheless, they agreed some years ago to become an asylum haven. Inevitable because creativity in some way, in extraordinary ways, in experimental ways, creativity obviously thrives here. Creativity obviously thrives here. Ahmed, how's it going? We are recording. Hi, Naila. <laughs> Good. Um, it's getting warm here. So it's like 16. Listening to Morrison's remarks, Great. I naturally think of my friend Ahmed Naji, BMI's current city of asylum fellow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I can give you this article in 30 minutes. I have been <laughs> writing the same article for 10 years now. <laughs> Ahmed is someone who I feel really lucky to know. Whether it's texting him about a graphic novel he reviewed or comparing notes on political talking head shows, I value his incredible personality and his iconoclastic way of thinking. It's possible to sip wine and laugh so hard at his stories that it becomes physically uncomfortable to finish your meal. In 2016, 
Ahmed served 10 months of his two-year sentence in Cairo's Torah prison for the charge of, quote, violating public modesty after a reader claimed he experienced heart palpitations while reading Ahmed's novel Using Life. In an excerpt from his memoir, Rodden Evidence, which was published in The Believer in February 2021, Ahmed wonders if his writing was worth all the pain and suffering he endured during his legal ordeal. Morrison's line about invisible ink recalls an anecdote Ahmed mentions in Rodden Evidence. In the story, Ahmed describes a fellow prisoner at Torah who spent his days writing his autobiography only to have it confiscated and burned upon his release. All of those memories documented, only to be destroyed. The man was presented with two options, to remember it all and start over again, or to live with the agony of writing a life story, only to realize that the conditions of his imprisonment had rendered the memoir an invisible ink. The man wept, and later he was carried out of the prison. It's not surprising that Morrison understood the complexity of refuge and asylum because her work contained so many imaginings of it. She started early, in grad school. Her thesis was about the alienated in works by William Faulkner and Virginia Woolf. In her writing, she manifested the rooms both Woolf and Hossein Akinar considered necessary for their creative freedom. Quite a few of Morrison's novels interrogate the ideas of sanctuary and asylum. The very first book I wrote, called The Blue Sky, was when I was not really thinking about publishing or, or uh, reviewers or other readers. It was a book I wanted to read, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I In her work, she created zones of hope and terror, places where her characters sometimes misguidedly think potential and even violence are confined within. But Morrison's work is partly about the inevitability of confrontation, both physical and ideological. It concerns the futility of escape. In her work, nowhere is truly safe. Baby Sooks used to preach right here. Let the children come. In the Pulitzer Prize-winning Beloved, Black people gather in a protected enclave for the formerly enslaved, a Cincinnati forest opening called The Clearing. A wise woman named Baby Suggs preaches in The Clearing about the importance of self-love. Let your wives and your children see you dead. The Clearing is a hopeful hub, a place of respite nestled inside an oppressive, anti-Black United States. In April 2006, when Morrison spoke at BMI, she was probably at work on a mercy, her masterful late novel on America in the 17th century. The novel focuses on this country before it had a name and an official ethos, even though then, as Morrison shows, it still was a troubled place. Fleeing racism, Sexism, colonization, slavery, and smallpox, just to name a few looming threats. The indigenous and black protagonists of A Mercy navigate a world where there is very little mercy to be found. The world she described in A Mercy was, for all of its characters, the essence of the new world, constantly reinventing itself. As I consider that cruel, inhospitable social environment and the dangerous wilderness of the early America described in A Mercy, my mind flashes to Las Vegas. It still retains much of that pioneer mentality, especially as the city stretches beyond its own limits. 
it's really the essence of the new world, constantly inventing, outrageously welcoming, both surprising and familiar. I lived in Las Vegas for a year and three months, and I discovered firsthand that it's fun to walk down Las Vegas Boulevard, as I have done many times, both alone and with friends, to fall into a fantasy, a place off that sparkles under the thousands of bulbs and strip signage. But just as in Morrison's novels, there is no escape in Las Vegas. What I've learned is that you bring yourself wherever you go, and that was never truer than when I lived in the city. I had already had family and close friends at home, but I found more of my people there, a community of writers and artists making work in the shadow of billboards and gigantic, fabulous resorts. Some of my friends are homegrown talent and others are transplants like I was. Second to finding more kindred spirits, I found a professional role that suited me and a way to make a living in my chosen craft. In Las Vegas, I've learned that you don't really escape. You just find more of who you really are. It's hard to find true silence or darkness in downtown Las Vegas, where I live for most of my stay. But there's the quiet you discover when you deliberately choose tranquility in a city the tourism board markets for its rowdiness. The middle of the night in the desert is time to compose work and tap into a version of oneself that is at once both simpler and more complex. A self-critical of mirage, but Lord, nevertheless, by whatever shape it takes in twilight. A moon dog in the night sky, the distant star of an idea appearing more clearly in the dark. In an essay called Peril, about artists under siege, Morrison explained that there are typically two responses to chaos, naming and violence. But there is also a third response, stillness. Such stillness can be passivity and dumbfoundedness, she said. It can be paralytic fear, but it can also be art. It felt suddenly when they went to bed, that silence in the house, and you were very lonely. And I think writing must be brilliant if you're lonely. In a 1988 interview, she teased out this kind of quietude. The solitude is critical. People have said that uh, unhappy childhoods make good writers because they tend to read because they're miserable or escape. And the solitude and the loneliness or the aloneness in which you really have only your own company. And if that isn't sufficient, then you will invent other company, and that's what fiction is. Was your first book... When I broke up with my ex-husband in 2012, I found myself in a Morrisonian state. As a newly single woman, I was struck between pain and possibility. Upset with the loss of a sense of permanence, of home in that relationship, I felt adrift. In my crisis, the only thing I could rely on was my mother's love, the support of friends, and words. Coddled by my mom and my girlfriends, I still wasn't completely satisfied. So I ran to a tattoo shop in South Philly. My friend Tashana came with me and asked me, are you sure you want to do this? And I don't know if y'all know this, but it's definitely not a good idea to get tattooed when you're in a vulnerable state, like after you get divorced. I assured Tashana that yes, I wanted to, and I mindlessly stared at the designs on the walls, even though I already had a plan. A few hours later, two of my favorite quotes were immortalized on my wrist. The word always from Sula, 
spoken by a character who wanted to remind another of her everlasting spirit, which would remain even after she died. The other was Ride the Air, in honor of Song of Solomon's closing line. I know that that phrase is not the same as Morrison's sentence. And believe you me, I know it's much less elegant. Okay, it's a heck of a lot cornier. It sounds like a refrigerator magnet or one of those dance like no one is watching posters you see in a guidance counselor's office. But in its own way, Ride the Air has provided a kind of guidance to me and has been a grounding force in my life. I didn't want the whole line anyway. I only wanted a few words that would act as an anchor in moments when I felt meek or afraid. I got the tattoos ink so that only I could read them. Years later, in August 2018, a few months after I started editing for The Believer, I surrendered to a feeling in the air. At the second annual Believer Festival, I leaned into my boss's suggestion to come out to Las Vegas and spend time in the city to get to know the people I work with who live there. I appreciate bearing witness to that dream being refined 15 years after Morrison's lecture in this desert landscape. Las Vegas, where the ink, like the summer air, is desperately dry. Dry and incredibly visible. Nine years after I got them, my own ink is dry, the black dye already becoming a faded gray. Still, the tattoos are an everlasting reminder of permanence during an unwieldy time. They are a way of reminding me that words are my home and that Morrison helped foster that feeling. Naila, as you know, I've heard this piece a few times now, and with every listen, I discover new information. And it's a lot like in Morrison's writing, the way that you've put it, that her her work demands effort. And I really feel that your piece demands effort, meditation, and close listening. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you for, for giving me the space to talk about all these very complicated things. I didn't know that I felt until I started writing. Do you remember back in the office, you know, in the before time, when we were talking about Fred Moten, I was, I had, I believe I had just sent off an invitation to him, inviting him to be a part of the Believer Festival here in Las Vegas. Do you remember this conversation? I do remember that. When I learned that Fred Moten was from Las Vegas, it was just such a special moment to me. I like listening to Fred Moten talk for the same reason that I like reading. You know, it's like, I don't understand everything I'm encountering. And yet I want to, I'm encouraged to look things up. I'm inspired to research. Through seeing the connections or listening to the connections Fred Moten is making, I'm inspired to do the same thing myself. Yeah, he, he really is brilliant in, in many ways. And it was actually during our recording with Fred Moten in our digital sound booth. While we were recording him in conversation with Josh Kuhn, there was a moment where Fred was punctuating his speech by hitting his hand on the desk. And it's audible in the recording. And and when we go back to that like whole NPR quality sort of thing, it's also a no-no in radio. Like, you, you don't do that. Um, and so our senior producer, she interjected and reminded him, like, that he was making that noise. And Moten just had this fantastic and interesting response. No, I, I hope you leave that in, you know. I, I hope you leave that in because... Cause 
But J.L. Austin would call those mere accompaniments of the utterance. You know, <laughs> this will seem like a totally different thing, but it's not. There's this great, amazing thinker, critic, theorist named Sylvia Winter. The only time I've ever seen her, the only time I've ever been in a room with her in person was in Dwinnell Hall at University of California, Berkeley in May of 1986. And she gave a talk. She was talking about something. I don't know, you know, high theory, whatever. And it got good to her in this way where she was patting her foot to her own speech. And all of a sudden I was like, is that, is that Sylvia Winter or is that Ella Fitzgerald? Like the rhythm of her own thought got into her body, you know, in this amazing way. And because of the acoustics of that room, that auditorium, Twinell Auditorium, you could hear it. You could hear it all over the room, the tap of her shoe on that wooden floor. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't trade the sound of the tapping of her foot for anything, you know? So we try to create these clean sound vacuums for our speech. So if, so I was banging my computer, <laughs> you know, because I was feeling what we were talking about, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um. That is amazing. I love that he said that, you know, in, in the undercommons, he talks about Black study and the Black radical tradition and this notion of fugitivity, of refusing to play along. It's a hallmark of his practice, not adhering to rules and regulations and, and, and working outside of those confines. And it's so funny, too, that there is this sort of kind of metatextual thing happening here where Fred Moten is inspired by an experience he had with Sylvia Winter in a um, in a lecture hall. And I wrote about this experience listening to Toni Morrison tape mm-hmm. of her in a lecture hall. This mm-hmm. sort of loop, you know, I, I don't know, something really beautiful about that. Just just like listening to our forebears and taking these sort of unconventional messages from what from 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 this ostensibly very like stuffy Uh um, context of being in a lecture hall. Today, as we explore these various themes, we've invited 2019 Believer Festival performer Josh Kuhn to sit down with Fred Moten. Josh Kuhn is a writer, curator and professor in the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, a 2016 MacArthur Fellow He co-curates Scala Crossfade Lab and directs the popular music project of the Norman Lear Center. Fred Moten is a cultural theorist, scholar, and poet creating new conceptual spaces that accommodate emergent forms of Black cultural production, aesthetics, and social life. He is currently a professor in the Department of Performance Studies at New York University. In 2020, Moten was also named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. Their conversation kind of goes in many different directions. We hear them talk about James Baldwin, music, loss, extraordinary listening, and for Moten, what it was like growing up in Las Vegas. I feel like this is like an episode of like the newlywed game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to see if we're gonna if we're gonna get each other wrong. My name is Josh Kuhn, coming to you from Pasadena, California. I teach in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. 
My name is Fred Moulton. I live in New York City. I teach in the Department of Performance Studies at New York University. As a listener, Fred is always, you know, you're almost like a key member of this invisible assembly of listeners that I feel like are always in my mind when I'm listening. Like there's this continuous song, this continuous musicalization of life that when I hear something that moves me profoundly or confuses me profoundly or outrages me profoundly, one of the people I immediately think of who I want to share it with is Fred. I've been listening a lot to this recent batch of William Parker recordings, the 10 recordings of migration of silence into and out of the tone world that I, I wanted to talk to you about. But specifically, there was a track that jumped out at me in terms of our relationship, which is um, his track called Baldwin from the Majesty of Ja album. The Negro Northern community, when I was growing up, has vanished. And people talk about progress. And I look at Harlem, which I really know. I know, and I know my hand. But it just made me think about Baldwin and made me think about you and William Parker. And I'm just wondering what you think kind of what your feelings are about the role that Baldwin's legacy is continuing to play in this ever unfolding moment that we're in. I guess in a way, man, it's like you always have to take into account kind of where the reception of Baldwin was when, when he passed, you know, in 1987 and the, you know, the reviews that he had been getting for his last novels and his last essays. People were, the claim was that he had fallen into a kind of bitterness. That's what people were saying. And, you know, there was also a way that maybe even just within the framework of the sort of black reception of Baldwin, there was, there were other folks, there were other voices that had become maybe more, more predominant. But it was also maybe this feeling that like immediately once we lost him, we began to try to come to grips with the magnitude of what we had lost. And I think there was also then a, a way in which, as periodically, every four or five years, dominant institutions, for whatever reason, try almost always unsuccessfully to come to grips, you know, with their own problems, their own racism, their own anti-blackness, their own exclusionary brutalities. And Baldwin always feels like seems like Baldwin is the convenient person to, for them to, to go to. It's like, it's as if there's something in the way that Baldwin thinks about love and in the way that Baldwin thinks about hope, that it allows generally unloving and unhopeful people to attach themselves to that just for a minute. James Baldwin to the rescue, to the rescue. And by the same token, and this is an even trickier thing, right? There's something about the intensity of Baldwin's anger that allows people who are not nearly as angry as they think they should be, they tap into Baldwin too. So he becomes a proxy for all these feelings that the people who invoke him usually don't have, <laughs> you know? 
But I believe that some people do have those feelings. And I also feel like, man, certainly William Parker feels Baldwin. And you can feel that feeling in, in his playing. I totally understand why it is that the, that, that the descendants of those who were stolen, I am a descendant of the stolen, you know, and I feel, I feel having been stolen in, in my own body, okay? Like, I feel it. It is, on the one hand, an experience that is not mine in a personal way, but it is my experience somehow. It is the experience out of which I emerge and I feel it. Okay. So, so, so I know I totally understand because I constantly am exhibiting myself that move, that, that move where one says you, I can't let you steal from me anymore. (laughs) You know, I can't let you steal from me anymore. I, I have to reclaim what has been stolen. You know, what it is to listen is to, in a certain sense, to, to be accompanied by other listeners, right? To, to be in the company of other listeners and that those other listeners are in your head with you. And I feel like, well, first of all, Baldwin is like an extraordinary listener. And you can already hear it in Go Tell It on the Mountain. You can hear the intensity and, and the depth and the devotion of his listening, not, not only to music, but to speech or, or to the music in, in speech and in black speech. And, you know, it's something that he writes about in the nonfiction when he reflects on his own work as a as a novelist, that he had to listen to Bessie Smith in order to finish Go Tell It on the Mountain. Maybe the other thing is that his listening is inseparable from his looking. And maybe that's where the the Buford Delaney connection comes in. Baldwin's connection to his mentor, the great painter Buford Delaney, who he he talks about Buford Delaney teaching him how to look at things, how to see. But he also talks about Buford Delaney teaching him how to listen. Well, it makes me think of a lot of things. The first of them is something you wrote, and I can't remember right now where, about the difference between voice and sound, and that the voice is often always linked to the container of the individual, that the voice is meant to wholly and deeply represent someone individually versus sound, which has a broader envelope. And so it made me think of... James Joyce's The Dead. And there's a scene in The Dead that 
uh, I, I've, I've never been able to shake, which is when Gabriel is at the bottom of the stairs looking up at his wife, who is looking at the dance floor, and he's watching her listen to a voice, a sung voice, and he's full of love for her in that, and, and almost lust for her in that moment, but then realizes he's watching her listen to someone else's voice, and in that voice is her love for someone else. You know, this question for me, Fred, of listening and what what that means, you know, last year, I in uh, at the very end of April, I suddenly went deaf in one ear. And my whole life seemed to just flip, which sounds so silly in now and in, in, in a way in hindsight, because, you know, when one lives through things like this all the time, but it philosophically upended me around everything I'd built my life around, which was this thing about the ear, you know, I have a whole chapter in, you know, my first book on the ear and, and listening is linked to the ear. And I've had to now try to figure out what, if anything, can listening mean if it's not through the ear? I can't imagine what it would mean for someone who has lived so deeply and so brilliantly by ear <laughs> as you to to have to confront that, that loss or that attenuation. And I know it's deep because I know everyone's closest relations are structured that way, but, but yours maybe even more so. Living with a musician, ha having that be a part of that, the intensity of your connection. And so it makes your invocation of that joy scene so much more deep. But, but you've already given us in the image and the idea of a, of a listener in your head. But to know that the voices in your head, that the sounds in your head are also experiences of, of listening. So that gives us a way of understanding how it is that sound and how it is that music remains for us. And, and it remains for us in these deep ways by way of the other senses, too. Like, maybe that's the most immediate compensation. How do you have music now? I'm learning new ways of thinking through this. You know, I have it in the conventional ways still. I've got one ear that interprets music in the way that I've been used to interpreting music. But the, the fear of losing complete hearing, coupled with one ear that can't listen in the conventional way, I think has, has, like you said, made me kind of dig deep into all the stuff I've taught for, you know, over two decades, but never actually um, how little I actually understood. But whenever I teach my classes on music, I always start with this question to the students about how, how do you define music? And two of the definitions I always pull up, one is from Whitman, who says that music is is not what comes from a flute or a violin or for, a, you know, from a drum. Music is what is already in you that the drum awakens or that the flute awakens. And then Ellington, you know, the famous um, clip of Ellington sitting at the piano and being asked to describe what he's playing, what kind of music he's playing. And he says, this is not music, this is dreaming. You 
also wrote a book called <laughs> called Audiotopia. I'm telling you, I'm like this is a cliche, Fred. But it's not because, and I totally hear you about that thing where you you write something and you think you know and you don't know. Yeah. No, <laughs> but it doesn't. But it doesn't all. negate the fact that you wrote it. And maybe it means you know, hey, you know, we in addition to trying to figure out a way to catch up to Baldwin, sometimes we even have to catch up to ourselves. Sound becomes place. Sound becomes this place that we live in. That 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 another way of thinking about audiotopia is as a kind of soundscape. And obviously, there's a utopian dimension that's given in that in the word that you coined. And maybe that's the dreaming part that that Ellington is talking about. That the music lets us, you know, it allows us to. We enter into an auditorium with other listeners, where we dream of another place, but not in a not in a passive way, not in a way that absolves us from the responsibility of making that other place. And it's a feedback loop, isn't it? I mean, the feedback loop is between we as listeners who get to accompany the musicians who are also listeners as they dream another place. And then we get to work with them in the making of that place. I mean, I think about this especially with regard to Ozo Motley and the way you write so beautifully about them as musicians, but also them as placemakers. As a band, it had a very specific understanding of the place that they were trying to make with other people. history both of Vegas and the casino world as being so crucial to black musicians, especially at that time, uh, in terms of just a pure gig economy, right? And as a, a you know, a source of, of, of employment and money and, you know, labor of work, but also as a place that if you weren't careful would break your neck and dump you. And I know you've got long history with Vegas and um, yeah, we'd just love to hear from you a little bit, you in Vegas. My mom came to Vegas in late 1960, and she was, you know, immediately folded into a community of, of folks who had migrated, black people who had migrated there from the South. And there was even a, a very specific community who had come to Las Vegas from the same town that she lived in. So she had friends from high school who then lived around the corner from us my whole growing up, and their names were... Eloise Bush and QB Bush. But I just cannot tell you how many times I sat around the dinner table at Mr. Bush's house while he was talking about the Moulin Rouge. He was always part of these groups who were trying to revive the Moulin Rouge, who were trying to, because the Moulin Rouge was essentially run out of business by the larger hotels, partly because it was so good at what it did and so good at what it did because part of what it did was absolutely tied up with the fact that black people could be there, right? That was where you went to hear music. All the musicians on the strip would come to the Moulin Rouge to play after hours, right? The Moulin Rouge was taking business away from the strip and away from downtown because it was the place to be. But the Moulin Rouge was 
it was always this dream up until the minute that they tore it down. Okay. Um, but I mean, I can't, yeah, I used to drive past the Moulin Rouge every night. Anyway, I, I just remember Mr. Bush talking about the Moulin Rouge so much and talking about it, And it really was a kind of talisman for the brutalities that black folks had to suffer in Vegas. What it meant for black people to be in this kind of horrific position of on the one hand being absolutely crucial to the gaming industry and the entertainment industry at the level of its you know, basic infrastructure. All my aunts on my father's side, all my, my father's sisters were maids at the landmark, at the frontier, you know? To be absolutely crucial to the infrastructure of something that you were also excluded from. The humiliation of the exclusion was not ameliorated by the fact that they also built these amazing social institutions for themselves. The clubs and the churches that were all embedded in the community that I grew up in. That those those churches and those clubs were were amazing and they and they were beautiful, but they didn't make up for the fact of that that exclusion. I think in some ways the Moulin Rouge came closest to to something like that, but it didn't either. And it was not allowed to to survive. I, I was reading also that in, I think it was 74, 75, that um, Wes Montgomery's brother, Monk Montgomery, founded um, the Las Vegas Jazz Society. I used to go to his house all the time because my mom was like a charter member of the Las Vegas Jazz Society. When Monk Montgomery moved to Vegas, he started the Las Vegas Jazz Society. They would have shows. They used to have a kind of standing show that was played in the in the Golden Nugget. He let my mom one time play one of Wes Montgomery's guitars because he had some of them in his house. And they would have these big picnics and fundraisers and stuff for the Las Vegas Jazz Society because because Vegas was a good jazz town. Like a whole lot of people, you know, they would come from L.A. to play. And on Jackson Street, there were clubs. There was another hotel called the Carver House. When Joe Pass was really strung out on heroin, he was on Jackson Street. Mr. Bush saw him all the time. I mean, he got cleaned up and he kind of moved back to L.A. And then Norman Granz picked him back up and he made all those great records on Pablo. But yeah, Vegas was like that. I remember my mom was a school teacher. <laughs> a couple of her students, one in particular was really like my older brother named Mike Davis. He would get up early and go to school and he would walk past the clubs on Jackson Street and they'd still be in there jamming, getting down. And he would sneak up to the boarded up window, you know, so he could hear that music. And I'll never forget, I actually put it in a poem. I, he said, man, that music used to mess me up. People end up in Vegas. <laughs> or it used to be that way, at least. I guess when I was saying that people end up in Vegas, um, in a lot of ways, the Nevada test site was one of the places where people end up. I mean, it's north of Vegas, you know, a couple hours um, north. But I worked at the Nevada test site, um, say, from the summer of 81 through the spring of 82, because... I had flunked out of Harvard my freshman year. So I had to take a year off. And 
one of my mom's best friends who still lives in Vegas. It's a great woman named LaVon Lewis. She got me a job working as a janitor at the Nevada test site. And one of my coworkers was this wonderful person who grew up in Red Hook in Brooklyn named Frank Fitzpatrick. And he was really like my mentor when I worked at the test site. And we were basically two people who had messed up, you know, he had messed up in a certain kind of way. And he really got me through him and Miss Lewis really got me through that year of working at the test site. And what could have been a kind of disaster turned out to be really amazing. Like that year was probably the the most important year that I had growing up because, you know, I read a lot of literature on the bus and I realized that that I should probably be an English major, you know, with stuff like that. Yeah, the test site was, (laughs) it was something else. But that was definitely my, my Las Vegas. Okay, let me do that again. <laughs> what did you Person call me? is my friend, and that just <laughs> on a page. All right, <clears throat> I'll start from I'll, I'll start from the top. <laughs> we truly hope you enjoyed this episode of Black Mountain Radio. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sada Ortiz is the host and curator. And today's special guest host is Naila Orr. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Leila Muhammad are our associate producers. Scott Dickensheets is our editor. Anthony Ferris is our production assistant. Phil Corbett is our sound mixer. Our guest musician is Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Jesse Jung. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Very special thanks to Fred Moten and Josh Kuhn. And thanks to the rest of the team at Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, Kristen Radke, Summer Tomad, Michael Ursell, and Haya Wayne. Black Mountain Institute is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Big thanks to our sponsors at Zappos, who helped make this episode possible, and who contribute to Las Vegas's creative communities with playful, people-first approaches to arts and culture. A special, special heartfelt thanks to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. And our deep gratitude goes to the Hank Greenspan College of Urban Affairs, the home of KUNV. A big special shout out to our engineer, Kevin Craw. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. 
Please consider supporting this project and all we do by becoming a friend of the Black Mountain Institute. We welcome volunteers and advice and urge anyone who is able to go to blackmountaininstitute.org and make a donation of $10 a month. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sada. Thank you, Naiwa.